you're on, but I don't think I am. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name's Elizabeth. I'm a member of the Branch Church, um, and I'll introduce you to Dave in a moment. Some of you might have come because you've been touched by cancer, um, and we're going to find out part of Dave's story um, later. Maybe you have someone else in your family or a friend who has been touched by cancer. When I googled it this morning, um, the statistics are pretty grim actually. Just for 2015, this was the expected number, and I was a bit surprised actually. In Australia, 70,000 men are expected to have cancer diagnoses this year, and 57,000 women. And of that, they expect, how they work out the statistics, I'm not sure, 26,000 men to die of that cancer this year, uh, 20,000 women to die of that cancer this year. So it's pretty full on um, when you start talking about um, cancer. And we will, st we will talk about that tonight. Um, just a few housekeeping bits. Obviously, there's plenty of food, and um, I don't mind if you work your way through it uh, at all and, and discreetly just pop up and down. And I will not take note as to who is the frequent. That's all fine, as long as it's not my daughter in the back corner. Um, we do have bathrooms off the, off the foyer as well for those um, who need to use those. And... Um, there, I'll talk a little bit at the end about some books that you can um, have a little look at as well. But I knew Dave, um, I've actually found out a few things about Dave today, but I knew Dave when he had hair. And um, even this morning when you went to catch a plane, you had a funny thing about the hair. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. I was walking through where they check your bags and they x-ray everything and they kind of swipe you with this and, and the woman asked me if I had any hairspray uh, to declare and then I think she looked really embarrassed and couldn't stop herself laughing. <laughs> yeah. So you used to have quite nice hair. I had beautiful hair, Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, once upon a time. Yeah. So I've actually got some of Dave's furniture in my house because when I was first married to my husband James, we moved into the house they lived in because they moved to go to Bible college and we moved into their house. So, um, and then I think at one point my husband contemplated or you contemplated employing my husband. and yep. But I didn't know, this is what's new to me today, um, that Dave, you'd um, spent time in Tassie as a child. Yeah, we, I spent 12 years in Tasmania. If you count King Island as Tasmania. I had four years on King Island. I had five years at Longford and I had three years uh, here living in West Launceston. Went to West Launceston Primary School and then went to what was called Oakburn College. The first year it was co-ed. I was one of 15 boys in the high school, which was very disappointing because you need 18 boys to have an AFL team and we had to play soccer. <laughs> so Oakburn was the girl part of Scotch Oakburn, for those who don't know the history of Scotch Oakburn. And you were allowed to go on a good deal because your father was a minister? Yeah, something like that. So no one else would want to go. No, sorry, that's okay. Okay, we won't go there. Um, 
So since I, I mean, I met you in the process of when you were training for ministry um, to be a minister of a church, and um, then we sort of didn't really touch base with you for quite a while. You had some really big plans at the beginning of 2011, and we've got this Facebook slide, which is actually the end of 2011, November, where the plans were starting to come in to happen. What were the plans that you started to have in 2011? I think the main plan was to try and stop that dog from killing itself on the road. But <laughs> no, that, that's, I'm the bloke on the right, and what we're doing is putting all of our possessions into a shipping container and sending them up to a place called Palmerston, which is a little satellite city just to the south of Darwin. Uh, we'd made a decision as a family. I, I married a Fiona and we've got four kids and two of them were still at home with us in high school. We'd made a decision that after 20 or so years in Canberra and having planted a church and seen that grow, that we'd leave Canberra and we'd move to the north of Australia and we'd been kind of checking it out over the previous year or so and decided that there was a big need for churches that connected with people and we thought that we'd like to be a part of that. My wife had a, a long history uh, working as a GP in Aboriginal health and she was able to walk straight into a job up there. We'd kind of enrolled the kids in school. We'd, we'd actually started to purchase a house. We'd shipped all of our belongings up there and We'd built a team, we'd gathered a, a group of people to start a new church, some from the Darwin area, some from Sydney, some from the Blue Mountains, some from Canberra, and we were pretty much ready to go. And I think this photo has taken around about, some, somewhere around about the 25th of November, somewhere yep. right at the end of that year. Yep. But if we then look at you in the few weeks after that, it's very, very different, Dave. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a photo of me in hospital um, with my daughter on the right. It's, it's actually the only photo of me in hospital which I'm pleased about. Um, on the 2nd of December in 2011, I was at a conference in Canberra. It's one that's held every year. People come from all over Australia who are involved in university Christian ministry. And there's a bunch of us uh, who just meet together and we have a coffee and we catch up on what the year's been like. And it was a bit of a swan song for me. I was saying goodbye. I'd been farewelled at, at the conference itself. And I was in the coffee shop. And we, we tended to just kind of go around and, and around in the circle. And people would talk about the year. And we'd, we'd kind of catch up. We're a very honest bunch. Like we'd, we'd kind of say all of the tough things as well as the joys. And it's normally a time that I'm hanging on every word that people are saying. But I'm totally distracted. And I'm distracted because I feel like death warmed up. I, yeah. I felt very uncomfortable. I was struggling to breathe properly. I had a pain between my shoulder blades. Um, my, my, my chest was feeling very heavy. And it had been like that when I thought about it for a, probably a week or so. In fact, the, the day after that, that shipping container photo, my wife said, OK, we're packed now. Let's go and have a massage. Uh, and she does that to relax, and, and we had this hour-long kind of Chinese massage. She came away floating, and I thought that I'd, I'd just been tortured for an hour. And there were obviously things were going on with my body that I, I put down to feeling tired and stressed and having done a lot of packing and, yep. and fixing things. But while I was sitting in this coffee shop, my, my left side started to go numb. 
I, I was losing sensation and feeling in my left arm. I was, I was starting to feel that my left leg was getting very heavy. And I mentioned this. I actually interrupted one of the guys. I said, sorry, guys, I don't mean to be a party pooper, but this is what's going on for me. And uh, one of the fellows there, um, a guy called Richard, had trained as a doctor, and uh, he said, right, we're going straight to the hospital. He had to go back to the conference because he was the, the head of the whole thing, but he gave instructions to one of our friends uh, to, to take me straight into casualty and say, Qu- query heart attack, because uh, the symptoms that I described for him yeah, looks were like that. high risk for heart attack. And I tell you, if you're ever frustrated with triage in emergency, just say, query heart attack, and they just open the doors for you, they take you straight in, and um, they hooked me up to an ECG machine, um, and I fully expected for them to say something like, look, you've obviously had too much coffee, uh, we'll send you home, we'll check yep. it for 24 hours, but they didn't. They were, they were really disturbed, in particular by the symptom of the pain between my shoulder blades. Uh, that worried them. They, they took me in for an x-ray, they couldn't make sense of anything then, but apparently that, that kind of pain between your shoulder blades is a normal symptom for an aortic rupture. So they were worried that I could be bleeding out. Yeah. And they took me then into, a, into the CT room, had a CT scan, came back, I'm in emergency. Uh, by this stage, my wife had arrived, a couple of other friends were there. This was an hour or so afterwards. And um, it was at that point that everything started to overwhelm me because I, I'm hearing the doctor say, we think you might have a tumour. Yeah. Um, and I can still remember getting knots in my throat, my, 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 you know, my, my tear ducts started working. I, um, and that, that was the beginning of, of an intense change. Uh, all sorts of things would have to be... Um, corrected and modified, turned around in the next 24 hours we had to make decisions as a family about, about Darwin. Because the um, container was packed. The container was more than packed. It was on a truck. <laughs> it, it, we discovered it was actually um, in a shipping yard in Darwin already. Um, all of our belongings were there. We were camped in our own house, uh, literally just with enough stuff to get by for the next week or so and then we were going to get in the car and drive up there. Um, and you'd resigned from your job? I'd resigned from... I'd been a pastor of a church, uh, a church that I actually founded. Uh, so from 96 through to 2011, uh, I'd been there. Uh, I'd resigned um, and said that we were, we were moving up. A lot of people, including the fella in that photograph, he wanted to be a trainee in Christian ministry. I said, great, come with me to Darwin. Um, he had his stuff in the shipping container as well. So there are a lot of a lot of people's lives were being affected by this, and I, I remember a family conversation um, there in, at the hospital, uh, where we're having to make decisions about what we do, and we, we had no idea what the future held. But hearing that word tumour mm. made us realise that look, there's going to be bigger things than we realise to deal with here. We didn't know how big at that stage, but we said, look, it, it looks like we're not going, um, and so we started the process of turning everything around. So tell us a little bit about the impact of that diagnosis on your relationships with your family and friends. Yeah. Actually, by the way, that's Fiona there. That's that's my wife, yeah. That was some... That's after you That's a few weeks later. I'm I'm out of hospital and I'm 15 kilos lighter, but 
Uh, I can tell you about that in a minute. But the, I guess one of the things, I, I'd never had much experience with hospitals uh, and with having to deal with doctors for myself. I'd visited people and so on. But it was really tricky to know which doctor was the one who was relevant. Because there was somebody who was a respiratory guy, there's somebody who was a surgeon, uh, there was somebody else who was into pain management, somebody else's uh, dealing with the cancer side of things and so on. I've got all these people, but it's really hard to know kind of what's going on. But what we really wanted to know was what's going on with the cancer. And, and I didn't meet that, that guy until a few days later. I, I should say, by the way, that the, the reason for the numbness... And the pain that I was experiencing was that, that that CT scan showed up a large dark mass right around my lung, um, which they d- identified later as being over three litres of fluid. Mm. Uh, that had to be drained. That was a pretty tricky process. <laughs> I tried to collapse numerous times as they tried to get a needle between my ribs. Um, they eventually did that, and then they operated on me uh, on the Monday, so this was on the Friday, they operated on me on the Monday to not only try and drain the remainder of the fluid but to be able to get a biopsy on the, they discovered that there was what looked like cancer on the side of the lung, Uh, they they had to identify that and then they did what some of you might have had, I've got a nephew who had this because he has Marfan syndrome and uh, that is I had a pleurodesis and a a pleurodesis, I've I've uh, been told is where they effectively try and remove the gap between your ribcage and your lungs by joining the, the, um, the pleural lining to your lungs and what they do is they open you up and they, they sprinkle powder in there like talcum powder uh, which creates a friction between the surfaces and they join together. Mm. Um, so all that had happened right on the Monday and then we saw the oncologist I think it was the Wednesday or the Thursday and um, unfortunately, I was there on my own because I wasn't, again, prepared for what was about to, to happen. Uh, I was hoping he would simply say, oh, yeah, we found a little uh, tumour in there and we'll, we'll cut that out and we'll send you home. But he didn't. He said, well, what you've got is lung cancer. That, that was surprising in and of itself because I wasn't a smoker. Uh, he said, it's, it's already spread um, the reason for all the fluid was that the cancer had ruptured and it had started to spread and they could find it in other places. Uh, and what you've got is incurable. Now, I... I was Fiona with you when She you wasn't heard, with me. I was that. there on my own at this point. It would have been good if she was there, but that was, that was devastating. I, in fact, I could, don't think I could believe it. I said, can't you cut it out? He said, no, this... We can't cut it out because we know that it's actually spread. So getting rid of that tumour is not going to solve your problem. Um, what, what about um, something else? And it kind of explore the options. And it came down to the fact that they were, they were going to have to put me on chemotherapy, which they thought, at its best, would probably see me live till the following Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and... As I pushed the, the oncologist and asked that prognosis-type question, the answer I got was, look, people in your situation, statistically, normally, I don't think he even said statistically, but I know that's now what he meant, uh, would live for 10 to 13 months. And honestly, it, it, it was like I'd just been sentenced by a judge. I, I so was, that'd be one of those 
26,000 men that would die this year of cancer. That's what he was basically oh, look, saying. The statistics for yeah, lung up. cancer is the biggest killer uh, yeah. of, the, of the cancers. And I was told that my cancer was stage four. There's hope for people who might get uh, diagnosed at stage one. That means it's, it's small, it's, it's self-contained, and it can usually be surgically removed. They'd chop it out, remove a lobe, remove a lung. Yeah. I didn't even know you could live with one lung, and when I saw that one of my lungs on, a, on an X-ray had collapsed, um, because it did yeah. totally, I thought I was good as dead. But then I discovered you could actually chop it out and still live. Uh, and I was, uh, yeah, trying to grapple with all of this. And um, at the same time, the operation that, that they'd given to me um, isn't enough to get rid of the, the fluid and remove the problem. They then put a permanent, well, not a permanent, it's a, a temporary drain through the ribs into that cavity to try and... Um, re- remove the fluid and it's got a pump attached to it a drain pump sort of thing and unfortunately I was in a hospital that had very uh, little experience okay. with the way they were treating me and I remember a, ke- a cleaner came in and kicked the machine over and, um, mm. and was asking what that is and a nurse came in and says oh we've got to get this right and she's tipping it upside down and around the wrong way and she had no idea um, and because that was actually not working, my body was starting to go into shutdown. Mm. Uh, I, I wasn't able to process any food. Uh, I was... Oh, well, you, you can see, well, in that previous picture there, I'm, yep. I'm on oxygen. Uh, over the next week or so, I'm just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And people were coming to visit me, and, and two of my best friends who drove down from Sydney, uh, had a coffee with my wife in the cafeteria of the hospital and they asked very bluntly, um, is he going to survive? And my wife said, I'm not sure that he's coming out of hospital. Yeah. It, it, it's like I went in thinking things aren't right, but within a, within a seven-day period, things were desperate. Uh, it got to the point where they... Fortunately, uh, one of the people involved in my treatment said, he cannot stay in this hospital... Uh, they transferred me by ambulance to another hospital uh, where this guy could work with his team of specialists. They repeated the operation. They put in two drains. Uh, they did a, a range of other things, and I gradually started uh, to improve. So did you feel a bit ripped off with the diagnosis of lung cancer? Because there's a bit of a stigma to that um, at times. I, did, I just didn't get it, I think, yeah. at, at the time. Um, I thought you had to smoke uh, to, to get lung, lung cancer. cancer. And I'd, look, I'd tried a few cigarettes as a teenager, but I'd, I'd, I, I hadn't smoked. I, they thought at one stage it might have been asbestosis. Yeah. And I was trying to think, when have I been exposed to asbestos? And I couldn't answer that either. Uh, there was a lot of confusion about it. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the family are all trying to make head or tail of this as well. And... I'm trying to work out what's going on with Dad, and it, it got very bad. I, um, Fiona and I got a solicitor to come in and, and draw up a will. Uh, I remember signing over power of attorney to my wife so that she could make decisions about effectively whether I lived or died and how that would happen. I remember having conversations with my oldest 
and the second and my third child is my daughter, the third one. I've got three boys and one girl who was sitting beside me there about life without dad. Yeah. My youngest was only t- 13. Um, yeah, it was, it was bizarre. And your dad, your own father, was actually going through cancer treatment as well at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was bizarre. The, we told my parents in June that we were moving to Darwin. Two days later, my dad gets diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and there's a, a tumour the size of a grapefruit in his neck. Um, so he, he'd been on chemotherapy and yeah. I, was, I was kind of uh, dealing with cancer at a distance and the prospect of moving a long way away from my family who were near Sydney and never for a minute thinking that would affect us directly. But, mm. Yeah. Okay, so would you describe yourself, it's a tricky question actually, are you a cancer sufferer or a cancer survivor? How yeah. do you think of those two, well, it, top it, those terms? It's interesting, I, I, I'd been in hosp- I ended up coming out of hospital just before Christmas Day, I think it was the evening of the, of the 23rd of December. Uh, in the following March, uh, there was... Uh, a thing, and I can see the sign, and I saw someone with a shirt on before, a, a relay for life, Cancer Council Relay for Life uh, in Canberra. And I think my daughter, who was 15, she just wanted to do something. Mm. And so she got a whole bunch of friends to participate in this relay for life. And then I discovered, Dad, you've got to come along for the opening lap. And uh, Could you the, actually walk it? Well, I, I shuffled my way. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to go there because there's going to be people with cancer and who, who wants to hang around with people with cancer? I didn't. Um, but but the, the thing that I felt I was a complete fraud, right, was that the opening lap was for cancer survivors and carers. Now, they made me wear a sash that said survivor and I'd only, I'd only had this thing for four <laughs> months and I was being told that I only had 20. So I'm, sorry, I only had 10 to 13. So I, I felt like, yeah, this is a real fudge. Basically means if you're breathing, you're a survivor, <laughs> and that is exactly what they meant. If you're really? breathing, you're a survivor, um, and it, it was a place I didn't want to be. But I was taken away from myself a little bit to see that there's a whole bunch of other people uh, who are doing all that they can, who are valuing their life, who who are. Um, struggling with their families and working it through. And to be honest, I actually appreciated the opportunity to be there. Yeah. And I've been back subsequently. Um, am I a cancer survivor? Well, I'm still here. Am I a cancer sufferer? Well, yeah, every three weeks. Hmm. Uh, and, and living in a way where I've been confronted with my own mortality uh, in a very painful way. Yeah. So every three weeks, you're still having a round of chemo? Yeah, look, the, I mean, it seems funny, doesn't it, for me to sit here and say I was given 10 months to live, and you do your maths, and that was nearly four years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, it was discovered uh, that when they took the biopsy of my lung cancer, uh, they, they found uh, that uh, it, it was a particular type of lung cancer. Having found that out, my wife sought some medical advice... And she asked for them to, to actually send off that biopsy to a cancer specialty place in Melbourne and get it tested uh, for a particular genetic mutation. 
I remember the oncologist saying, well, there's no point in doing that because it costs a lot of money and only 3% of people have this mutation. Uh, Fiona, if you know my wife, as you do, she's a fairly determined woman. And she said, no, we're going to do it. And honestly, the, the cost in the whole scheme of things was nothing. But I came back as one of that 3%. So I have a particular rare genetic mutation, which uh, if you're really into that stuff, it's quite interesting. Uh, what's happened in my chromosome, uh, in my DNA, is that the second chromosome has flipped around 180 degrees and it's fused across with the fifth chromosome. Now, the effect of this is called, uh, uh, well, I'll give you the acronym, it's ALK, right? I'm an ALK patient. And there's a number of us in Australia, I've, I've met a handful. What this kind of genetic mutation does uh, I think can best be described as like turning on a tap yeah. where there's a hose and cancer uses this hose and it just goes along this. So it's, it's not smoking, it's not asbestos, it's not radon gas, it's not any... There may be some kind of environmental or, or physiological thing that we don't know yet, yeah. but I've got a genetic driver for my cancer. And this is where a lot of cancer research is, is at now. It's getting right down to the level of DNA and it's discovering particulars. The upshot of that medically is that they're now developed in the time that I've been kept alive, targeted treatments and a second generation of targeted treatments that don't attack the rest of the body, they just turn that tap, tap off. off. I haven't started that yet though. Ah, oh, um, that's not the treatment you've had? No, no. So... I was only entitled initially. That treatment has only been approved in Australia since July this year. Uh, people have been able to get on to it by getting on to some kind of trial, but the ability to get on the trial ceased two days before I was diagnosed. Uh, so I was told I had to have chemotherapy, which is, you know, it's just like a big scattergun approach. It, it's poisoning the whole body. Um, and so my wife again does some research and she discovers, well, there's chemo and there's chemo. There are some things that, that do this sort of damage and there's some things that do that sort of damage and, and there's cutting-edge stuff in other countries that's not available here. And, and through all of this research, we made a... which was a very costly, financially costly decision not to have what the government offered but to have a cocktail of two drugs that we were um, unable to get without paying for and one drug that the government would, would uh, support. So you bought each hit of chemo every yeah, three yeah, weeks? Yeah, and that's been the case right up until two months ago. Um, so they normal, in the olden days, they'd have given me somewhere between four and eight treatments and they would have hoped for the best and sent me home and said, good luck. But... Around uh, a year or two before I was diagnosed, they'd started to experiment with what they called maintenance therapy. That is, giving you longer doses of not, not the most ultra-toxic, which I could really only cope with four doses of, but the other two drugs. Um, and I've been having those drugs every three weeks since January 2012, uh, which... It's really unusual. Uh, people ask me now how many times I've had chemo. I don't know. It's somewhere between 60 and 70. Uh, and the effect of that is, it's, well, it's heavy duty. I, 
I, I stress out. It actually affects me emotionally now. I get very anxious about it. I come out in a cold sweat, even Before driving you go to the in. hospital. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've got to control my breathing. I've got to calm myself down. I, you know, they, they pump it into me. I, I spend a couple of hours in there, and, and then I go home waiting to get sick. So sometime in the next 24-hour period, I'll start to feel really bad. I'll end up being bedridden. There'll be a whole bunch of symptoms. Uh, and sometime around seven days later, I'll feel like I'm over that, and I'll get two weeks before I've got to do it again. That's, that's life. In, and you're in, in the household. middle week of that at the yeah, moment. Yeah, I'm in the middle week now. So, hey, I'm pretty, pretty happy. So your uh, calendar's based on your treatment yeah, schedule. Yeah, yeah. And I've got to plan well ahead. Yeah. But what, what they do is that they, they would give me this, this drugs, or these multiple drugs, and then about once every three months, they'd send me back through that that uh, electronic donut they call the CT machine and I'd get a scan and I I remember the first scan showed that the tumour was actually slightly bigger than when I was first diagnosed Mm. that was a little bit scary but I I think the effect of it was because they couldn't even start me on chemo for at least a couple of months after I'd been diagnosed because I became so weak and so sick and lost so much weight that I wouldn't have been able to cope with it. So when they thought, okay, we can try that now, the cancer had, had continued to grow. Um, but then three months later they do it again and we're back down slightly smaller than the original diagnosis. And then three months later a bit smaller again. And we're getting down to the point where it's measurable. Like, you know, I could talk about the golf ball inside me and then I could talk about the large marble inside me and then I could talk about this little pea inside me. And around about 15 months, I remember saying to a, a, a mate that, you know, the, the last scan, it's, it's the size of a pea. Now, that's not the only cancer in my body, but that's the only thing they can see. Um, and he's saying, okay, I'm praying for a mustard seed next time. Next scan came back and my wife, um, I'm lucky because I can get the scan results that day because my wife can kind of get onto the computer yep, and, hack and, and get them. I know some people stress out because they've got to wait for the next appointment or yep. even longer. Um, and she just comes in and she's got the facts and she puts it on the bed where I'm lying. It says, read this. And, and I'm going, you know, gobbledygook, gobbledygook, blah, 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 blah. Big words, big words, you know, scientific stuff, medical stuff, blah, blah, blah. So just read the last line. Um, and, uh, and I read the last line and it said, no evidence of. And there was a word that I'd never heard of before. And I, I've actually forgotten now what that word was. And I said, what does that mean? And she says, look it up. She's really good with bedside manner. Um, Okay, give me the laptop. So I I type it in. Um, Wikipedia tells me this word. I wish I could remember it. And it said cancer or tumour. I said, what what does that mean? Does that mean? She said, yeah, there's no evidence of cancer. There's there's no evidence of your tumour. Like, um, now, I've got to be careful here because... I then go back to the oncologist after that to talk through the results and he won't say that you're cured. He won't say, they don't even use the word remission much now. He says what you are technically is no evidence of disease, NED. That was about 18 months into it. So okay, I'm NED, right? Um, So do I stop treatment? No, 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 no. He's working on the assumption 
He was back then and he is today, and I'm still Ned, as far as I know, that I've got active cancer cells in my body still that are being suppressed and prevented from spreading and, and multiplying to the point of creating new tumours that will damage or destroy other parts of my body. So the chemo keeps the tap turned off? Uh, yeah. The, effectively. The, 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 chemo the cocktail is, of drugs. Well, it, it's kind of like the chemo is just shooting random bullets everywhere yeah. and you hope that it's hitting some bad guys. Yeah. But it's also doing a lot of collateral damage in the process. So just tell us a little bit yeah. about chemo because yeah. um, obviously for some... And they've got all sorts of um, medications that can counteract yeah. some of the side effects and you're yeah. on some of those. yeah. yeah. But one of them is this brain fog or chemo brain. Yep. Um, what are some of the other things that you've had to deal with? Sorry, what did you say? <laughs> I knew you'd do that. Uh, that was a set-up joke, that one, wasn't it? Um, yeah, look, there, it, it's an unknown when you start, right? They, they say, look, these are the likely side effects. You would never willingly read that list. I think it's been written by a solicitor to cover their backside against being sued for anything that may go wrong. Because every drug that I've had has had a list of pages of potential side effects of which the most serious is always the same, death. <laughs> right? um, so one of the drugs I'm on elevates my blood pressure uh, and it's known in, in cases to cause hypertension, uh, heart disease, heart failure, heart attacks, strokes, etc. Uh, and I've got to take drugs to keep the blood pressure down. There's another one that... Um, I'm the three percenter, right, because Fiona chose one drug over another because a common side effect of, of chemo for lung cancer patients is that they get what's called peripheral neuropathy, yeah. um, nerve damage in the hands and the feet, uh, but the drug that she argued that I should be on, only 3% of people get the neuropathy from that, but again, I'm one you of the 3%. It. So I take another drug which uh, accidentally they discovered works on the nervous system to stem the damage. It's actually an antidepressant, fairly well-known anti-anxietal antidepressant that I've been taking. Uh, and I take various other things as well. Um, the, the simplest description, and I think it's fairly apt, that I've heard about the way chemo works was by a friend who's a doctor who said, what we're going to do is we're going to work out how much poison will kill you and then we'll just wind it back a notch or two. Mm. Uh, I think, good, that's nice. Yeah. Mm. I don't really want to die from the treatment. But it's one of those counterintuitive experiences where the treatment makes you feel so much worse, mm. potentially, it, it, in my case this, is, this has been so, than the actual disease itself. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had a time where you just wanted to stop the treatment? Yes. Then? Yes, I have. I've I've hit the wall emotionally a few times. Um, even in the last two months, I had a really strong kind of robust argument with my oncologist about stopping. Um, and what I've what we've been able to do, and I thank God for this, is over the last eighteen months. Once every six months, I skip a cycle. And the upshot of that has been that instead of, of having to realise that I'm in two weeks' time I'm going through it again, I get five weeks, and then I boldly last time said, let's try two. And so I had eight weeks. Mm. Um, 
where I was able to do things. Like, so the first time I did this was so I could attend my son's wedding and not be you know, unable to get out of bed or throwing up on the day. Uh, but then the second time I did it was so that I could actually enjoy a five-week holiday at the beach with my family uh, where they didn't have to run off and do things without me. And yeah. That's helpful, I think, emotionally, but there are many people who argue that it's been helpful physically as well because uh, it gives your body just a chance to to not have to fight the toxins of the chemo. Um. Um, have you, in the meantime, like I think actually the last time I saw you was at a friend's funeral. So the doctor friend, Richard, who mm. was at the coffee shop at the beginning, who was part of this conference, his wife, uh, Bronwyn, died of mm. cancer. Yeah. And that was the last time I saw you yeah. um, at her funeral. Um, and you've been to people's funerals who've had the same cancer treatment as you, like chemo buddies. Yeah, yeah. How, tell us a little bit about how you sit in those funerals and what's going through your brain and how you get out of there um, in one piece emotionally. Yeah. Um... It is a hard thing to meet people, and I meet a lot of people now, because not only have I been journeying with cancer, but I've, if I can put it this way, I've become famous for being someone who's journeying through cancer. So the, the book that's there and blogging and, and just people who know people who say you might want to look at this or talk to this person. So I have made contact with quite a lot of people um, who've either had exactly the same uh, diagnosis as myself uh, or a range of other cancers. Um, two people in our church were diagnosed with the same cancer as me uh, and in many ways it didn't look as bad as it was for me. They weren't diagnosed at stage four, it was stage two and it was stage three. Both those two people have passed away in the last 18 months. Mm. And what's happened for them, I think, is the expectation that, that they were given has been realised. They, they haven't lived a long time. There's only a, a, a 10 to 15% five-year survival rate for our cancer. Um, but things have just gone really well for me and I don't have any real indication as to why. I mean, everybody's different. The statistics at the end of the day mean absolutely nothing. They're just a record of what's already happened. They won't tell you anything about what will happen to you. And so it has been very sobering. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, Bronwyn's funeral that you're talking about, I, rem I remember feeling that this could have been my funeral. Not that I was feeling sorry for myself, to be honest, in any way. I was feeling deeply sorrowful for... Bronwyn's family who were left behind and the reality that could have been my family and one day will be my family that are left mm. behind. So I think what it does, the whole cancer thing, is it's like, it's like a lens that, that focuses you in on life and death and, and relationships and God and faith and doubt and, and all of these heavy things. Uh, it... It helps you to see your own mortality that we give lip service to, I think, mm. so often. 
Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd spent a fair bit of my life riding a motorbike, and people used to call me a temporary Australian. Uh, but I don't think I ever took my mortality that seriously. Mm. And being told that I probably wouldn't see next Christmas is like getting hit between the eyes. So how do you um, describe the impact spiritually? What? Yeah, look at that. Was it... That, that, that's, that's, that's been a really important thing and it, I think I started in a, in a very difficult place. So, you know how we're, like, as people we're complicated, aren't we? So you have a stressful day and you realise you get home from work and you've got a headache. Um, you, know, you had an argument or, so, or, or too much was expected of you at work, you've got a headache... You've got muscle tension between your shoulder blades. Uh, you, you, you're feeling wiped out. Now, what happened wasn't physical, right? It's not, mm. it's not that you were kind of beaten up at work. It's that we're complicated. Like we're, we're beings where our emotions and our physicality are all intertwined. And I think our spirituality is caught up with that as well. And, and so as my body is shutting down and, and as I'm being bombarded with drugs and as I'm not coping, and there was, a, there was one night where, one night and a day where I was on drugs that gave me very, very frightening hallucinations. I'd never experienced hallucinations before, uh, but I couldn't escape them. Eyes open, eyes shut, semi-asleep or awake. Uh, it was terrifying. And all of these things are happening to me, and... I'm being tested physically, I'm being tested emotionally, I'm being tested in terms of life and, and I think I was vulnerable at the level of my own faith and my, my spiritual beliefs. So I had spent years trying to persuade people to take God seriously. I'd spent years persuading people that this life is not all there is, that, that there is a resurrection from the dead after people die. I, I, I'd spent many a conversation kind of talking with people about whether there is grounds for hope beyond the grave and uh, I, I believed all that, I, I proclaimed all that and yet there was a sense in which it was all theoretical hmm. and now it's hitting me as a real person um, and now I'm being told there is no hope of a cure Right? There's, there's no potential to get rid of your cancer. It's, you're, you're now only on a downhill trajectory, whether it's three weeks or three years or whatever it might be. Those sort of questions about what happens when you die are, are bombarding me, and I started to question. I remember lying in bed thinking, is there really a God? Have I been praying to nobody? D did Jesus ever exist? Is everything that I've spent my life on and I'm, I'm employed as a minister uh, is it all just you know Harry Potter and, and, and wizards from Hogwarts is it so how did you handle the doubts when they were so real what did you do well it, I was greatly helped by people around me uh, so people would come in and, and they would talk and, and they'd listen they'd, they'd actually read the bible to me uh, people were, were willing to answer questions. They, they prayed with me. I, I had friends uh, 
shooting me texts and Facebook messages and sending nice cards. And um, there was a lot of encouragement. Mm. But in, in quite a simple way, I found myself going back and asking the very same questions that I asked as a first-year university student. Because I'd grown up in a, in a Christian home and when I arrived at university, I had to work out, did being in a Christian home mean that I was a Christian or I just followed the culture of my home? Mm. And there was a, it, was a, it was a very confronting question, uh, partly because I was studying in a faculty where where it was, it was committedly atheistic and humanistic and, and God didn't feature at all. And, and there were many around about who, who, who were very dismissive and intellectually dismissive of my beliefs. And so I, I asked simple questions. I, I remember looking at a book that argued for the evidence of Jesus being a real person, um, weighing up the evidence about his crucifixion and about his resurrection from the dead. And... and these sorts of questions that I asked as an 18-year-old, I'm finding myself asking as a 49-year-old. And going on to... There was a, there's a, a website that exists out there called... Um, I think it's called CPX. It stands for the Centre for Public Christianity. And they've got a whole bunch of, of little videos where they talk to you know, an archaeologist or an ancient historian or, or some philosopher or some theologian. And, and I'm... I'm just taking on board all this stuff. As somebody who's done a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in theology, Mm. uh, who's who's planted a church and run a university ministry and preached on different continents, I'm actually having to answer these questions afresh. Mm. And I think God was working through all that. And he was helping me to, to... I want to say regain my confidence in these things, but that's not sufficient. He was actually taking me beyond so that I was confident in these things, but my confidence is now a confidence tested against doubt, mm. tested against my mortality, tested against the, the questions that other, that other people could never throw at me. They, they've got to come out of what I'm experiencing as a very sick, potentially dying person. So you've actually written a book... And they've got a photo of it at some point, yeah. Um, That's not me in the picture, by the way. (laughs) I realised that when somebody scanned and sent me a copy of the Financial Review where the same photo was being used in an article on economics. And (laughs) thought, oh, stock photos, there you go. (laughs) So your title of it is Hope Beyond a Cure. Yeah, yeah. So what does the word hope actually mean in that context? Yeah. Well, look, that that was a big question because one of the things I've done over the last few years, as well as writing things myself, I actually read quite a bit on the internet. And there's some wonderful forums out there where, where people talk about their experience with cancer. There's a massive one in the United States called inspire.com that is so big that I can scroll down the right-hand side and go to non-small cell lung cancer, which is my particular type, um, non-small cell lung cancer, lung cancer stages 1, 2, 3, 4A, 4B, oh, wow. and then in the, in the 4 I can go to uh, mutations, EGFR, ROS1, out positive. So, uh, 
I can, I can narrow in on, on people who are going through the, exactly what I'm going through. And I can't look at it all the time because it's depressing. Because a common theme is, um, I feel like taking my life because my mother is gone and I have nothing to live for. That sort of stuff. Like, but one of the things that, that I was struck by one day was a post from a particular woman who said, from NED to no hope in less than two weeks. And I read that and she talked about how, now I think there must have been a mistake because I don't know how you can be diagnosed with having no evidence of cancer to being told that there's nothing we can do for you in two weeks. But anyway, what, what it summarised for me, this, this title, was that the big hope that this person had, in fact really the only hope that they were clinging to was of being able to continue life and probably to be cured of the cancer. And when she was NED, that was easy to have at one yeah. level. But when she was told, look, there's nothing that we can do for you medically, it took away the, the, the biggest thing that she had. Now, it was at this context I, I thought, well, hang on a minute. I was told in, De- in December 2011 that I had a terminal illness. I'd always had a terminal illness. <laughs> and so do every one of us. Like... We're born into this world knowing that one day we'll die, right? We don't know when. We don't know how long we'll get. We don't know whether it'll be in infancy or in middle age or in old age or whatever. But nothing, at one level, nothing had changed for me in terms of my ultimate prospects. So take the big picture, and it's not that I'd suddenly got a terminal illness. It's that I just had kind of turned the lens into focus to be able to see a bit more clearly when it will be for me. But even that was wrong. Mm. <laughs> and, and I thought, gee, if, if that's the only thing we're hanging on to, this poor woman, even if she's cured of her cancer, she will die of something. And so it, it, it helped me to understand that the, that the best thing that I can have myself, the, the best hope that I can offer to other people is not that they will find the cure for cancer. Um, and they're making remarkable inroads in this. And I'm so thankful to the fact that they are. And that whereas I was given no medical help, now I'm being treated more like a chronic patient, being told that there's two or three treatment options up my sleeve that I haven't even touched yet. But it's still not everything. I'm still going to die. Mm. And um, the, the Bible tells me that, that Jesus makes possible a hope for eternity and that this life as important and valued as it is and it really is valuable and it really is special and God has made it so um, it's but a small fraction of what God is ultimately planning for people for eternity and so I wanted to I was pushed in a way to write this book because I wanted people to to use the really confronting experience of, of a cancer diagnosis or something uh, equivalent perhaps for them uh, to think, okay, well, it's like a, there's a warning sign and now what am I going to think about how I'm living? What am I going to think about God and how I treat God and what God might or might not have done for me and, and what possibilities that holds for this life and is there a life to come? And Honestly, I think it's a no-brainer to investigate those questions. And so um, but some people have said to me, and I think there's a wisdom in what they're saying, don't you think it's a bit callous 
to be talking to people about God and Christian things while they're in such a bad spot. You know, like they, they're going through cancer, that's bad enough without introducing God. And I think, let's just change that for a minute. Let's, let's just change that story. You think, um, what, what if it was people out in the water drowning? Hmm. And you think, well, let me tell you about the hope that there is for, for a life boy. Let me tell you about the hope that there is that, that a lifesaver might come out on a surfboard. You think, well, is it wrong for me to choose that time? No, it's absolutely it's fundamentally important to choose that time. And, and so my, my goal, I guess, and I talk to so many people now, is to do it with, with empathy, with gentleness and respect. But to, but to say this, this just matters even more than what you're going through at the moment. You've written well. I've read the book. I enjoyed it. Um, not supposed to enjoy well, yeah. <laughs> No, it was very helpful for me as well for other reasons. Um, and I actually have multiple copies So, because I work as a chaplain at a school and because cancer is so prevalent, uh, if a parent's diagnosed with cancer, they get one of these from the chaplain. Um, so it's being read a little bit around here. Uh, but you've written this, and I've put the quote up on the board, the doctors told me that I had no hope of being cured because my cancer was too advanced. Tumour, incurable. I was devastated and hopeless. There were no medical options for removing the cancer. The best they could offer was to try to keep me alive longer by slowing the progression of the cancer. Since I had no hope of a cure, so you couldn't put your hope in medicine, um, I had to look from the very beginning for hope beyond a cure, which makes sense of the title. Um, how does the Bible use that word hope? Because in our culture, hope is more wishful thinking. Yeah. But you use that word hope very differently. Yeah. How would you explain the use of your word hope in that? Yeah. Um, I think my definition of what hope means is it's the expectation of a better future. Yeah. The expectation of a better future. Uh, so it could be wishful thinking, right, that I'm expecting a better future. So somebody might be uh, diagnosed with this terminal disease and they're, they're looking at uh, you know, all, all kinds of different treatment options and, and dietary options and all sorts of things. And, and in the big scheme of things, that's going to give them no actual... Uh, medical, physical benefit, right? Yeah. But they're st they're, that's where their hope is because they're looking to a better future when I've done all these things. But the reality is for them it's wishful thinking. They might not know that at the time. Now, what makes something wishful thinking as opposed to a confident, uh, well-grounded expectation of a better future um, needs to be weighed up on the basis of the evidence. And so... I think a funeral is a good way to think about this, in a sense. I know this is, it's a bit heavy tonight, I know these things, but I've, I've yet to go to a funeral where there's not some kind of speech to do with hope. Mm. Uh, so Uncle Jack's in a better place. Or yeah, Mary's now one of the angels and she's looking down on everybody and, and she's with me all the time. Or, or sadly, close friends... Uh, who lost twin, uh, a, tw a twin of, of twins two weeks ago, born premature, um, one didn't survive, 
being told that, that the one who didn't survive is, is the, the spirit who brought the other into the world safely and they'll be reunited one day. So they're being... These are all funerals, right, where there's, there's statements of hope. How do we work out which statements of hope um, to take seriously? And mm. in a Christian funeral, what I would expect to hear is that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ having died for you and being raised to life, if you're putting your confidence in what God has done for you through Jesus, um, then you'll be united with Jesus in the, in the age to come, in, after your death. Now, in our world now, that sounds, that sounds more stupid and sounds more wishful thinking and then this person's now become one of the stars or one of the angels. Unless there is a precedent. Unless it can be demonstrated that what we're being promised has actually already happened. And so this is what marks out Christian thinking, Christian understanding, from a whole bunch of different views about the world and life and spirituality, is that Christianity claims to be based on historical uh, events. And the thing about a historical event is, is you can weigh up the evidence as to whether that event took place or not. Uh, the thing about Christianity is that it's verifiable, it's challengeable, it's testable. Now, it's not, it's not testable in a scientific sense. Yeah. Um, it's, it's testable in a historical sense. And see, so the way that we, we work out whether, uh, whether there was ever a guy called Gough Whitlam who was a Labor leader who became uh, the Prime Minister of Australia and was sacked by the Governor-General, isn't by repeating it, okay? It's not that we'll get the next Labor leader and we'll sack them by the Governor-General uh, and therefore it proves that there was a Gough Whitlam. That's, just, that's stupid. That's not the way history works. What you do is you check the evidence for it. And so you'd go back and you'd look at the newspapers, you might interview some of the people who were around at the time. I was actually at school in Canberra on the day that we were told that he was sacked uh, and I went home and said to my dad, who I can remember was in the garden, and said, Gough Whitland's been sacked and the Governor-General's going to make Malcolm Fraser the Prime Minister. And Dad said to me, that's stupid, it can't happen, he's with the opposition. But, of course, that's exactly what did happen. We were sent outside yeah. so that the teachers could all watch TV. So they could all clap and cheer or, or mourn. We were all told to go outside and play. Now, <laughs> part, partly I, I appreciate the fact that checking out whether Christianity offers hope for resurrection is to ask the question, was Jesus actually resurrected? And to go back and, and look at the accounts. And it's interesting, one of, the, one of the earliest passages in the Bible that talks about the resurrection of Jesus uh, is written by a, a guy who we know as the Apostle Paul. And it, it's in a letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth. And, and he says in that about how Jesus was placed in a tomb um, and dead and buried, right? So it proves, and he, he said, you know, there's evidence of this. You don't stick people in tombs unless they're dead and who was raised from the dead, and then he goes on to talk about the evidence for that. And he says, and he appeared to Peter, uh, and then to other people, and, and to the twelve, and, uh, and to 500 witnesses at the same time. And then he says, 
Um, many of whom are alive, but some have fallen asleep. That is, some of them are still here, and if you knew who they were, you could go and ask them questions. So, and we think this is written within 17 years of the events that are being described in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, now, you and I can go back and ask questions about the dismissal of Gough Whitlam, and that was 1975, so it's 30, 40 years now. Mm. Um, we're only talking about 17 years there, and they could go back and ask similar sorts of questions. Uh, and for that reason, I want to say it's not wishful thinking. I want to say that having investigated that back as an 18-year-old and, and, and been challenged about that again a few years ago, and as I continue to look at these things, look, it's not absolute lay-down misere. That's a card-playing term, by the way. But it's, it, the evidence points, I believe, to the truth of what the Bible says about Jesus. And on the basis of that, that's given as the very grounds of our hope. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he was up front saying, if this is not true, then I'm to be pitied more than all people because I've lived my life for a lie. If this is not true, then there's no point hanging on to this Christian stuff. We may as well eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If this is not true, then I'm actually a perjurer. I'm a liar. I'm a false witness. So he's not saying, look, please believe it, please believe it. Effectively what he's saying is check it out. And one of the things that I've really wanted to do over the last few years, as I've recognised that I'm not going to live forever in this world, uh, is to not take my time for granted and encourage others not to take their time for granted. Mm. And don't put off that question about, about who is God and what does God think of me and can I be right with God beyond death? Because most of us don't know when that day is going to happen. Mm. In fact... I think about this particular thing every time I get on an aeroplane, almost. And I hate getting on aeroplanes. Actually, I don't mind getting on an aeroplane. I hate them landing. Because mm. I think, I, I, you know, whether they kind of do this. And I think, we're doing 300 k's an hour. We're going to flip. I'm going to die. Um, I, I remember reading an account. It was back in the 1980s. There was a 747 British Airways plane going from um, to Australia, I think, from... Um, Indonesia, or it's going through Indonesian airways, and and there's a, a volcano in in the Indonesian islands called Mount Galanggalang, and it had erupted, and there was volcanic ash in the air, and what happened is this 747 was flying through, it blocked the engines, uh, and this 747 uh, literally lost all power to the engines. They couldn't fire them up again. They they tried and they tried. And for 10 minutes, this aeroplane literally just nosedived. Um, and this was an article in, in The Australian. Um, and it, was, it involved interviews with people who were on the plane. Now, because it didn't crash, it got down to much clearer air, the engines fired up again and they were able to land. And all the people that were on that plane who can get together on an annual basis at a gathering of what they call the Gallangalung Gliding Club. <laughs> the only people who've ever glided in a 747 and survived, right? Well, they give each other new underwear. Well, look, I, but what was fascinating in this article was the things that went through people's minds, right? Now, here are people who know that they're about to die. You know, there's, they're just going down. 
And, and for 12 minutes they're falling out of the sky and, and I was absolutely bemused to read. So there was one, one lady who worried that the newspapers would spell her name wrong. That was what's going through her head because her name was Bronwyn with, an, with a Y and not an E. And there was somebody else who'd bought all these T-shirts um, for their grandkids in Bali and they were worried they were all going to float away. There was another woman who'd left her car f- further back in Heathrow Airport and all that can kind of she can get out of her mind is how are my parents going to find my car in the airport? Right? And, and look, it's story after story like this. When you're interviewing these people, what goes through your mind when you know you've got 12 minutes left to live? Thoughts turning to God, there wasn't a single person interviewed whose thoughts turned to God. And, and when I meet with people, I hear them saying all the time, yeah, look, I know I've got to deal with that question. I'll deal with it someday. No, you won't. What happens as we get older is our, our thinking kind of contracts and we become more fixed in our ideas, not more liberal and not more creative and not more open. And these people are, I, I think it was just a wonderful little cameo test case of, okay, you're going to die. Are you going to think about God now? No, I'm going to think about the antique china that I bought at a great deal in a market in Bali. Yeah. So don't, don't buy that one. Um, if you know that you need to think through stuff about life and death and God and, and, and what you should believe and what you shouldn't, put but it on your bucket list now. Some people say um, that it's actually about your faith. Yeah. So there's another quote about that, mm. um, that, you know, that you're the one that has the great faith and they don't have it, yeah. that sort of thinking. Yeah, people ask that a lot, actually. Um, I, I often have people say, "Well, yeah, it's okay for you. You've got, you know, you've got your faith and, and so on." But I think we've we've actually bought this religious idea about the word faith that's unhelpful. So we, we tend to think of faith as a religious commodity. Some people have it, and some people don't have it. But you and I are both exercising faith at this point of time um, in a very profound and physical way. That is, we're sitting on these stools. And yours um, is creaking. Mine's squeaking. It, it, <laughs> it moves around. It's a little bit wobbly. But I, I have faith that it's going to hold me up. Now, if I'd been standing here the whole time, right, and, and uh, I'd been answering your questions and talking, and, and then you'd come to this point of, of asking me about faith, having looked at this quote in the book, um, and I'd say, no, look, I've got faith in this chair. You'd have every reason to be suspicious and ridicule the notion of that faith. Um, but it's not that you've got some religious commodity because you've got faith in the chair and I don't. It's not that you have something that's been given to you or something that only a select group of people can have. It's, it's that you've thought about whether this stool can be trusted. Now, to put it into a much more significant thing than, than stools... Um, which is a word that means other things when you're getting medical help. Um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't need to say that, did I? Do we not want to talk about that? Do we want to go sorry. there? No, no, we won't go there. Um, when, when it comes to, to faith in God, honestly, I'm happy to get rid of the word faith. So do I trust God? Do I depend upon God? Do I rely upon God? Am I willing to let God take care of me? And... It's not some the, the the big thing there is I've got to answer whether God is worth putting my trust in, whether He is reliable, whether I can depend upon Him. 
And in the same way, we, we just make a simple assessment that the chair looks reasonable. It, it's obviously been sat on before. In a bigger way, I was asking those questions about Jesus and history and, and God keeping his promises and evidence for the resurrection and those sorts of things. And so I thought, yeah, it sounds pretty trustworthy. Hmm. It sounds like something I should rely on and can depend upon. Um, it's not that I have something special because I grew up in a Christian home and because I've been inside a church building and scrawled my initials on the back of the pew. <laughs> at, um, at Margaret Street. Oh, which <laughs> United Church, which I took you back to have a look at today. Mm. So we've got a photo up. It's the next slide. And now that's actually a little bit out of date. Yeah, way out of date. So, because that little one's now too. You can see the Wallabies one day, can't you? <laughs> so you're a chaplain to the Brumbies, which is a football team. Yes, there's another code it's of code. football outside of Tasmania. Yeah, it's a um, code we don't understand. Yeah, that's right. Actually, when I lived in Launceston, I had a mate whose dad was big. Now, when I say big, my dad was six foot four and he made my dad look small. And he was big in every sense of the word, so he had to duck to get through the doorway and I think that he had to turn side on to get through as well. Um, or but he played this strange game called rugby and I thought you had to be a physical giant. I've since discovered even little people can play. Anyway, sorry. That's so this little yeah. person here? Yeah, this, this little person, this is my first grandson. When I was lying in hospital and I thought I wasn't going to live very long, I, I actually had some bucket list prayers. I asked God that one day I might see a grandchild and I asked that he might keep me alive long enough for my second son to realise that his girlfriend was worth marrying and for me to go to the wedding. Um, both those prayers have been answered. And I've got some other bucket list prayers I won't tell you about, but this week I've actually had a second grandson. Mm. He's got a little brother now and he's two. So mm. great joy. And yeah. you actually, because you didn't end up moving to Darwin... Mm you have rearranged how you use your house so that you're all sort of close a bit with one, with one of your sons. Yeah, the, the son with the kids. his dad and, and mum, uh, they now live in our house and we now live in the flat in the backyard, <laughs> which is quite appropriate because I'm married to a granny. <laughs> oh, Fiona must love that. Um, so... I just thought I'd leave it open for a bit before I finish up um, and let people ask questions. So if you have a question that you feel brave enough to ask Dave um, on his experience, also on his trust in God and how that's impacted his life and given him that hope... Um, Yes, I'm throwing it open to the floor for a bit if anyone's got a question. Yeah, feel free to ask anything. So. Anyone brave? Ah, oh, we have a few. A we'll go more. up the back. T- um, how has your experience your family? Yeah, yeah. I think I got asked that earlier. So the question, the question, yeah, we didn't quite answer that. The question was how has the cancer experience impacted your family? Yeah, look, I, I think... My wife 
uh, I think is born quite a lot uh, in this. Uh, and at times I realise that I don't appreciate just how much of an impact it's had on her because it's forced her to, uh, I would say probably for a third of the time to function as a single parent for a lot of, a lot of that because I really do get incapacitated. She's lived with that whole uncertainty of whether she's going to be a young, younger widow. Um, uh, she has greater knowledge as a GP and a well-researched GP and with greater knowledge comes greater fears as well as, um, as helps. Um, I didn't talk about this, but 15 months before my diagnosis, uh, my wife and I and our two youngest children were travelling uh, from the Northern Territory around Western Australia and um, Fiona was driving in the Pilbara area and we were towing a camper trailer in high winds and the camper trailer got swung around and we lost control and uh, rolled four times. She was air ambulanced um, and uh, literally broke the bones right through her arm, had, has a reconstructed and metal shoulder. Our 13-year-old was thrown out of the rolling four-wheel drive and we thought we'd lost him. And so, so for her, this has been on top of what was already a very heavy time of crisis. Um, but I thank God for her. She's, she's wonderful. Um, my, my oldest son, I think he, he had his his wife and that was that was helpful for him and my my daughter we were amazed at her uh, just she just seemed to cope when my book came out it was the beginning of last year uh, she read it and she wept and she wept and she wept and she said it's the first time she'd really cried so in some ways she'd, she'd kind of bottled that up and, and she'd soldiered on and um, one year after the, the diagnosis, interestingly, I was invited to go back and be the speaker at the same conference that I was at 12 months before, and I was hoping that I was going to be like that character on Groundhog Day, where I'd wake up and realise it had all been a dream. <laughs> but it didn't happen. My youngest refused to go to school on that day, and he'd, he'd been a bit of... He'd been very flippant, to be honest, about school for a while... And Fiona was heading off to work and I was lying in bed and I, I heard her frustration and just said, well, you've got to go. I know it's at the end of the year. I know not much is happening, but you've got to go. And Anyway, she went off to work and I was supposedly left to kind of make sure he got to school. As I walked out of my bedroom and, and, and down to the kitchen, I could hear over the noise of the shower my son, 14-year-old, hysterically sobbing and the thing I've noticed about Marcus is that he tunes into kind of quirky things in ways that that I couldn't have imagined and, and we discovered that um, uh, you know, we discovered a bunch of other things but when he came out of the shower I, I sat and I talked to him and I, I said mate what, what is it and we didn't talk about it being the anniversary of my diagnosis he obviously knew that, but he said, Dad, I'm just worried that I'm going to lose you. And at that stage, I still had evidence of cancer a year later. Um, uh, it, I think as time's gone on, it's got easier. 
Probably, though, the child that found it hardest was... There were three of my kids in Canberra. Uh, one of them was at university in Sydney. Uh, he went through... I don't think you'd mind me saying this, but he went through very serious anxiety with significant uh, physiological symptoms of that. Um, all kinds of struggles ended up... We, we helped him to, um, to, to get professional help for that. Um, yeah, everybody handled it differently and, and continues to handle it. It's, it's, it's a continual journey. Um, and, yeah, we, we thank God for how he's, he's helped each of our family. Yeah. There was another question. Yeah. Yes. Um, has a, how do you, how do you, does it change the way you talk to people? How, how you open up subjects of uh, eternity? Yes, I think it has. The question is whether I, uh, just my own experience has made me more open to talking about issues of, of eternity and so on. Uh, to my shame in some ways, I, I, I tell you, when I was in the hospital and I didn't think that I was going to survive at all, um, it didn't matter who anybody was, I'd, I'd grab them and, and almost insist that they sorted this stuff out with God, even though I was going through all my own issues. And I, I remember actually getting a whole bunch of people to agree to read a book that I made Fiona give them or, you know. Um, I, was the, I was a very bold Christian with, with all these people because um, I didn't think I had anything to lose. But... Now I'm more normal again and I, I stupidly worry about what people think of me and, and my ideas and so on. But to be honest, in my heart of hearts, I do want uh, my friends, my family, the people that God gives me the opportunity to engage with, uh, not to buy the lie that, that this life is all that matters that we're simply just atoms and molecules that are randomly joined together and are one day going to dissipate into the dust. Um, that, you, that that is not who we are, that we're much more important to God because he's created us in his image to have a relationship with him. And I, I want people to know that reality. I feel ill-equipped to persuade them of that. And I can't at the end of the day, I can't make somebody believe anything uh, but I want to expose them to the question and if they want to explore I want to point them to where there are answers uh, I don't know many of you personally but I'd say if, if, if you're uncertain about these things um, as a mate of mine once said years ago if he was wrong um, then he'd wasted a lot of Sundays but he, if he was right, then people are in danger of wasting their eternity. Hmm. Let, let me say something about this. I, I'm seeing significant changes too in our, in our world, but even here in Australia, in terms of what's acceptable to talk about, what's acceptable uh, to communicate to others. And, and we're in a massive shutdown mode. Um, 
And I can understand it. You know, this fear of radicalised Islamic beliefs. There's there's fear of, of extreme fundamentalist Christian beliefs. So there's, there's fear, there's fear, there's fear. But I don't believe we have to fear investigation. We don't have to fear communicating um, about deep and meaningful issues with each other. And if we shut down the opportunity to to have this dialogue and, and explore these issues, um, we do so at, at the massive detriment to our, to our own humanity, let alone the risk to our eternity. Mm. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm very heartened that the... Um, uh, Tim Winton, who's the... Winton? Wilson. Tim Wilson, who's the Human Rights Commissioner mm. in Australia, he's... He's publicly um, an atheist uh, in, a, in a homosexual relationship. He is an extreme advocate for the importance of religious freedom, of being able to talk about what we believe. Um, not because he has a particular ideological position on Christian faith, uh, but I take it because it's, it's important to be human. Um, and I want to encourage people in their humanity to ask questions about where they come from and where they're going. Hmm. There's oh, there's more. Okay, um, is it Hans? Yeah. Yep. When you were diagnosed with cancer, and in the time after, did you have to struggle with the question why? So the question is, um, during the diagnosis, did you struggle with the question, why is God doing this to me? Um, to, this might sound strange, but honestly, I don't think I did struggle with that question. It wasn't, it wa- wasn't significant for me, the why. I wasn't looking for answers of why. But what was interesting was a lot of people around me were. A lot of people around me were, were either wanting to tell me possibilities for why this was happening to me or get me to ask the question and explore it. But that wasn't the big thing for me, uh, was to, to why. Partly, I think, because I realised that so much of life we never get an answer to. We're not, we're not told a why. And God calls upon us to, to trust him with what we're going through Recognising that he sees the big picture, even if we only see this much of it. Now, now that I'm able to look back on three years and ten months, I can see lots of opportunities. I can see lots of good. I can also see lots of pain and, and, and difficulties that have come out of it. But it would still be wrong for me to say... God gave me cancer so that I could write a book that would help other people who are going through these things. Because that's putting me into the place of God and it seems to me that in the Bible there's another guy who suffers seriously and his name's Job and he had a whole bunch of people who gathered around him and, and pushed him to ask that question and gave him suggestions as to why he was suffering and God's verdict at the end is they didn't know what they were talking about. 
they did not know. Um, I'm the creator. I'm the one who sustains your life. Put your trust in me. Yeah. But look, it's a, I understand that for a lot of people it is the question. And I think deep down it's a question of justice. It's a question of fairness. Why is this happening? This is unfair. Um, and I think unless we have reasons to be confident in God that are bigger than the evidence of our circumstances, we're going to struggle on that one. See, if I'm trying to weigh out whether God loves me on the basis of what I go through, um, then when I'm in hospital, I'll be thinking, oh no, God doesn't love me because I'm dying of cancer. On the day that I read this fax that says, no evidence of cancer, I'm thinking, oh good, God does love me. Mm. But then one day in the future, I'm going to get sick again, or the cancer will come back, or, or something, and I'll go, oh no, God doesn't love me again. So how do we operate in that pendulum? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, God says, you want to know if I love you? Look back to around 30 AD in the Middle East, outside Jerusalem, see a hillside, three crosses on it, the one in the middle... There's your evidence. There's your evidence that I love you. I sent my son to die for you. Even though you've done nothing for me. And I, I truly believe that. A um, member of my family used to always think that because it rained on holidays, God didn't love them. The farmers thought that God loved them. Yeah, grow up in drought affected New South Wales, you think it would be the opposite. We'll take one more question. strongly it was Psalm 90 and the words in that psalm that say teach me to number my days that I might have a wise heart and just being reminded that you know I'm, I'm but a passing character on this stage and you know I, I can't even tell you my great grandfather's name uh, it wasn't McDonald and the history of what his name really was went to the grave with my grandfather. My father can't tell me either. And so there's no way of, of going back and finding out who, who any of my ancestors or forebears were before four generations. It's a secret. It's gone. And I'll get forgotten as well one day. Um, and, and to remember that, that God gives us this time and it is a short time and to value it and make the most of it... I, is something that I've sought to do. Uh, I think another thing that's uh, become more real for me is the, the Bible talks about God working his power and his strength through our weakness. 
It's, it's something that I think just about every Christian would give lip service to, and I would have. Yeah, sure, yeah, I'm trusting in God to do this, but deep down I'm really just working out of myself and hoping I'm good enough. And being able to, to not even get myself up off the pillow or out of the bed or to be able to go to the toilet on my own was very, very humbling. And to face the reality that in a week and a half's time I'm going to have to lie in bed and trust God with my family and trust God with the church that I'm pastoring again now and trust God with this and I won't be able to do a thing about it. There are kind of real lessons like that that I appreciate. Um, I said to one guy recently that I think one of the parts of the Bible that I've come to appreciate more than ever is the Sabbath. And what I mean by that is, is not the importance of taking a day off in seven. It's what that meant for the people. Because what that Sabbath day meant was that they weren't able to trust themselves. They couldn't go out and pick their own food. They couldn't go down and, and do this work. They couldn't make sure that they were looking after themselves on that day. God says, if you try and look after yourself for that day by taking double the day before or whatever else, it's going to go wrong. Um, and I think I appreciate that God's got this world under pretty good control without me. And it'll be okay if I'm lying sick in bed and I don't need to pretend to be God. Um, yeah, no, there's lots of lessons. Um, there's a few things just to finish us off. Um, Dave has flown with no luggage bar bag of books and um, we can only do it for cash today um, though I believe you'll sell some tomorrow, there's a men's conference here tomorrow so you could always if you don't have cash in your wallet so bargain price of $10 the book is um, it's it's not an easy read but it is an easy read because it's got the story of Dave's um, Situation and his the impact on his family, but it's, but then it's a full on read in terms of as you look at it yourself. Um, you can buy them at a bargain price of ten dollars, um, or if you're wanting to buy five, you can get five for forty as a tonight deal. Um, and they're wonderful books to give to people as well, um, and speak volumes into people's lives. And, um, I mean, even today I had a phone call from someone who I then relayed to Dave and said, oh, they read your book um, when her husband was diagnosed with cancer and who died at the beginning of this year and it brought great comfort to them and to their kids. And, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very powerful book. Um, so I recommend that. I guess for me um, there's a personal aspect in that my connection to Dave was my late husband. So 2011 was obviously a significant year for you in that diagnosis and going through quite horrendous time of coming to terms with the fact of being given a diagnosis of terminal cancer. Um, but for me at the beginning of the year was because of that, the uncertainty of life, um, it was when my husband died on a bushwalk of all things um, and yeah, so um, I remember in the following year as you were going through and I was following you on the blog and um, 
I went off to a relay for life thing and I came home all discouraged and I said to my son who was all of 14 and a half and I said I wonder what God thinks of us walking around in a circle and thinking that that would somehow halt cancer because it can't possibly and I was very cynical um, not counting to the fact that actually the Cancer Council relies on the money and does great work with it in comforting people and helping research and all those things but I was very sort of like cynical and Jordan my son just said yeah I wish dad had died of cancer Um, because it would have been for us that that window that in a sense you've had with your family of saying those things that you want to say but most importantly not that James didn't have this comfort and nor my son Jordan but most importantly having that time knowing that death was a certainty a reality there and knowing that you could be prepared for it and that son has gone on to be a strong Christian I'm thankful for that So I'm deeply challenged by you as well because in light of all of us having that terminal illness and knowing that we all will face death, you have faced it in a way that's refreshing for all of us to undertake as well. Um, And so I read the book in grief and found it deeply, deeply, deeply comforting because... It spoke of the hope beyond even the grief of losing someone um, in whatever circumstance, whether that was through a horrible cancer experience or through an accident. So I encourage you to read the book. Um, I encourage you to consider afresh the, the boldness that as Christians we can have of, of Jesus' resurrection. And that because of that, it does give us hope. Um, So it's been fantastic having you come back to your hometown. Um, And tomorrow you're here again to explain what part of the Bible you're hoping to explain? Um, One chapter, Philippians chapter 2. Okay. So that's for the blokes um, can come. Or women with beards. (laughs) All the bearded ladies. Yep, okay, they won't go there. Um, so we want to say thank you. There's still plenty of food, obviously, though I think that will be left over for tomorrow's men. Um, I'm going to quickly pray. Um, i say before you do. Yeah, do. Um, I'm happy just to chat with anybody yeah. afterwards too. And um, I've been invited to speak on this stuff at a couple of other places and some people have come up to me and they've said, look, I've got a friend or a relative or whatever who's going through cancer and, and I'd like to give your book to them, would you write a little note in it? And I'm happy to do that because um, sometimes it, it just gives a way to bridge a gap. Um, if I can just write a little um, message um, briefly to them, so I'd be happy to do that. And uh, it's... I got one letter back last year uh, from a guy. He didn't have cancer. In fact, for him... The, the book would have been the same if it had been called Hope Beyond Freedom because he was in jail for the rest of his life and he had no hope of release. And, and if you think what really matters in life is your own freedom, all his hope was gone. And 
God used this book to help him to see that even though he was never coming out of jail, uh, there was something for him that could mm. never be taken away. And that was ultimate freedom. Um, and I, I'm thankful to God that he's used this in some very unusual contexts like that. So, mm. thanks. Well, let's finish by praying. Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you for Jesus who has gone before. We thank you that in history Jesus uh, lived a life, uh, in many ways a life of obscurity and hardship, but Lord that he, we thank you most importantly for his death and resurrection and for the resurrection that changes everything. Lord, we pray that we would look afresh at that and cling to that for our only hope. We thank you for Dave and how you've worked in his life and we pray that you would continue to work in helping him to cling to you, helping him to be patient with his treatment and the side effects and the impact on his family. We pray, Lord, that he would be patient um, on himself uh, Lord, but we pray, Lord, that you would use him and keep him well at this time to speak into other people's lives. But most of all, we thank you for the gospel that does speak uh, of eternity, a life with you, a life beyond this world and beyond anything that this world can offer. And we pray, Father, that we would cling to you and seek to know you and love you and be known by you. Help us to do that with freshness. Help us to do that with certainty. Help us to do that even in our frailty and weakness. And at times um, when we feel so weak, Lord, that you would speak um, more, more loudly as such. Help us to cling to you and no one else. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Cool.